Welcome to Metro Charities podcast series on equalities. I am Emma Jones, head of Insight at Metro, which gives me the privilege of delving deeper into all the work we do and chatting to colleagues across the charity who deliver services in HIV support, mental health, youth work, sexual and reproductive health services, and a range of community-based projects. For this feature episode marking Disability History Month, I spoke to a group of current and former colleagues and management committee members of Metro GAD, formerly GAD, Greenwich Association of Disabled People. GAD merged with Metro in 2019, forming Metro GAD. The organisation was founded in 1975, emerging through the independent living movement in the USA and UK and associated political and human rights activism with the objective to promote their welfare and rights as disabled people and for the wider community of disabled people who live, work or study primarily within the Royal Borough of Greenwich, including by insisting such persons to obtain their full rights and privileges as citizens. Post the merger in 2019 and becoming part of the Metro family, MetroGAD continues to be led by disabled people for disabled people, with its own independent management committee and a ring-fenced membership on our board of trustees. This approach reflects the disability rights maxim, nothing about us without us, which members of MetroGAD will talk about in this interview. We discuss some of the key moments, campaigns, services and activism of GAD from 1975 to the present day as MetroGAD. Please do be aware that some listeners may find some of the content in this discussion distressing. Sue, you could introduce and we'll work our way around the room so everyone can say their name and their role at MetroGAD. Yeah, hi, um, my name's Sue Elskud and I'm a member of the management committee of MetroGAD. I was recently chair for the last two years um, and I've been a member of of GAD since um, 1989, that's when I joined. But actually the organisation was established and founded in 1975 and it was the first Centre of Independent Living in London, so it was very pioneering around um, disabled people organising for themselves politically and speaking up for themselves and um, pioneering issues around independent living in the community rather than what had been previously happening, which was uh, a lot of traditional institutional residential um, social care and um, people having traditional care agency support which is very limiting in terms of uh, people's choice and control in life. Thank you Sue. We're going to return to talk more about the independent living movement and, and GAD's role. We just work our way through so we can... Matthew? Matthew Goodsall. I am a member of the management committee. I have always been interested in disability politics as a survivor of the special school system and now as a writer and filmmaker. Thank you. Right. 
I'm Kate Brown. I'm a member of the management committee again. Yeah, it, I think it was 1979 or 1980. I, I and a friend of mine, we just set up a law centre, Plumstead Law Centre, and we were both lone parents, so we set up Greenwich One Parent Project. And we got funding to have it put somewhere and we went to the St Mary's Church in Woolwich. And that's when I found Gad, because they were in the same building. Funnily enough though, at the time I didn't actually realise I was disabled. And that sounds a bit stupid really. At 17, I'd gone into a mental hospital because epilepsy was classed as a mental illness and they kept me there for 10 years until they said oh no it's not a mental illness it's a physical disability and they let me go so although I had the worst type of epilepsy which is tonic clonic I still didn't I it it hadn't clicked then if you like I used to hide it from people because um, they thought it was they, people looked at you different after you had a fit. They really didn't talk to you much after. They certainly never asked you for advice or anything. Yeah, it caused me problems in those days. But then, of course, I had... Um, do you remember the killer gay rid the world of AIDS uh, around the pandemic? Our pandemic rather than the new one. Um, and I, I used to run a nightclub at Goldsmiths Tavern, right next to the college at the time. And I was on the bus coming home and some men followed me and knifed me numerous times on Plumstead Common. I don't know whether, I sometimes say three days, but I think it was more like three weeks later. I had a stroke and then of course went in a wheelchair and. Then I had a second one a bit later, didn't I? I can't remember when that was. You remember that more. That was in the 90s, early 90s. Yeah. And then I set up uh, data. Disabled Association for Tenants Advice. That's it, data. Yeah, I'll stop there. Thank you for sharing your personal history. I have to say, I'm upset after what you said. <laughs> Um, I can't imagine I what it's like for you. So I'm upset about it. Yeah, I've well, done, done it so mm. many times. I do it more. Boom, boom, boom. I think it's probably because it's a bit more personal for being here, perhaps. Yeah, well, thank you for yeah. telling us anyway, about your history. So. And, um, yeah, I hope everyone feels safe. Um, Hi, everybody. I'm John Lay. I was born disabled. I had one or two bumpy rides as a child. People ask me why I laugh a lot. One of the things I tell them is because it saved my life. So I try and laugh at things all the time now. It's not possible ever yeah. <laughs> over yeah. every situation, but I find laughing certainly helps. Yeah. I was married with three children when I moved into the borough of Greenwich um, from Lewisham. Uh, and, and moved into a house in Elton. And uh, I had been unemployed and I was 
in the process of, of retraining to become a, a therapeutic counsellor. And at the early part of that training, I was um, advised to find somewhere where I could use my listening skills. And I found out about GAD. So I came along to GAD um, initially as a volunteer to listen to people. Um, and I spent most of my time in the drop-in, which we had on a regular basis. And that was in uh, Christchurch Forum in Greenwich, where GAD had moved to by then, yeah. and that was yeah. the mid-1990s. Um, so I sat and listened to people and encouraged them to talk about what things they were struggling with, which then enabled me to say, well, we have a welfare rights advisor who might be able to help you with that. Would you like to make an appointment to see them? Or we have somebody who helps people um, finding out how they could have more control over their, their life in the community. And um, we had a self-operated care scheme worker Socks, which sounded a bit weird, but it was the forerunner of personal assistance and the like. Um, and so I was there to try and guide people, signpost people to which services in GAD they could use. Um, and I've been with GAD ever since, which now it's the 30 odd years. Um, They've tried getting rid of They them. have, but I, I don't get rid of very easily. Um, <laughs> with a, a number of different roles, which we can go back to later. I'm going to Ten 
Yes, this person is suitable for direct payments. Then handed it to the council, who does an assessment on waiver, probably budgetary constraints. And at that point, they're not going to say, no, you don't have it. And it's because of the nature of a psychiatric patient in the community having perhaps weaker resolve than anybody else. They haven't got the resolve to challenge it, you know. It needs freshen out, and this has been going on for years, you know. In the next section of the discussion, we talked about the independent living movement in the UK, experiences of special schools, as they were called, and the sense of community that GAD provided for its members. I think it would be great if we could sort of go back to the beginning and say how far we can get along the, the chronology. But I thought if you could start with maybe some of the inspiration about independent living coming from, I mean, some people might say from America and other people might have it. So, um, yeah, I wouldn't mind coming in here about uh, to talk about independent living because um, I guess um, I, w- I was also 
uh, born as a disabled person, but I have a progressive uh, neuromuscular impairment. So um, I have always, as, as an adult, needed um, personal assistance support. So when, when, um, when I was younger, my mum did contact Dad. So as a child, um, she got some advice for me um, and the family. And so I think that was our first contact with Gad. And um, one of the, the people on the board at the time, Laura Irwin, came to our home and talked to our family. Um, and then um, later on, I went to a, a residential college at, after being at a special school mm. in the borough and there was support there but it wasn't one-to-one -one support so it was very limited so um, if you wanted to go out of the college unless you could independently go out yourself you were pretty stuck so I then got placed at university in Nottingham and Managed my family managed to along with the school persuade the local authority to provide me with voluntary support so that I could take up my place at university because I needed um, personal assistance to actually to to be at at the uni. So I had um, support of two people each term to support me there, and then. When I left uni, I got my own place and um, I was lucky enough to get a flat, get an accessible flat and um, I continued to have assistance then and, and shortly after the independent living fund became available. So what, what really um, helped me to navigate having personal assistance was having some mentoring support via GAD. That's when I joined GAD when I left university. And my my buddy, my mentor was Catherine Arignello. And um, so that that was a great introduction to how how life could be totally spontaneous if you had the right support and um, yes, how to live life to the full and I also started to do some political campaigning with Catherine and then I met Kate, Kate is here today, Kate Brown and we all went um, along to, to protest with campaign for accessible transport to, um, to persuade the transport companies and the government to make public transport accessible to all. So I think that's how I got involved. When you, went, you said to us you went to university. Did you say about the timeline for that? Yeah, yeah so, um, so I went to, um, so I went to a, uh, sorry, I went to a special school in the borough. So I've always lived in the borough of Greenwich. It was called Charlton Park School, now Charlton mm. Academy. So I went to the secondary part of that school. 
Yeah. And that was um, up until 1983. Then from 83 to 86, I was at Heriwood College in Coventry, which was residential for disabled students. And then I went on to university from 86 to 89 in Nottingham. And that's when I came back to the borough in 89 and joined GAD and then became a management committee member. Fantastic, thank you. I just wanted to go to Matthew now because you mentioned specifically <coughs> something Sue referred to, which is you said you were a survivor of special school. Mm -hmm. I just wonder if you could tell us a bit more about what special school was or looked like for somebody um, in your situation going to education in the period you did. That is a huge question. I went to a special school up in Cheshire from the age of 5 to 18. Students there were not really encouraged. To think for themselves, I would say. Yeah. Most of them wouldn't live past 20 anyway. I was lucky to leave with a handful of basic qualifications. But I worked my way up. I got levels, then went to university. It was there where I experienced real independence for the first time. Mm. I, I was at Chelton Park <coughs> School. Um, that we were moved there from schools around South East London. Um, when it opened, I was 14. Part of the difficulty is not only that the education was not particularly good, or that they focused on physical activity uh, above academic activities because our poor bodies needed all the exercise we could get. Um, I mean, you know, they had a, a pool built in at the school so that we could go swimming a couple of times a week. We had PE twice a week. We had sports sessions two or three times a week. Um, we were only allowed to take CSEs. Nobody was considered to be <laughs> educatable about CSE levels. <laughs> yeah. Um, but the other thing about it was like the social thing. It, it's very difficult, and I'm not 100% sure how much good it did me being with other disabled children. I had to watch my classmates die one by one. Mm. We... We regularly had, in the morning assemblies, announcements that somebody in the school had passed away. Mm. That, was, that was part of what was accepted as being normal. But okay, could, could you explain more about, because Matthew, you've made a comment, you've made a comment, just so a, a, broad, a bigger audience would understand what you mean by that and what, who was, what, was, mm -hmm. what was happening. Uh, do you want to go, Matthew? They weren't schools, they were just places, because all children have to be educated, let's put the disabled over there and, and, and they're out of the way. Pad um, conditions like muscular dystrophy. They had conditions like muscular dystrophy. I mean, I had a I had a friend with a hole in the heart, 
who had decided to have surgery and didn't come through it. He was 14. Yeah. Um, we had, Charlton Park had um, children from infants right through to 16. So um, younger children were passing away because their conditions deteriorated um, or because of the lack of proper medical support. My query from, from my own experience is whether being one of one or two disabled people in a mainstream school full of thousands, you feel totally isolated and with nobody to relate to, and whether being with other disabled people in a segregated school gives you a better situation from the point of having peers that you feel you can relate to. I'm not sure, but I do know that the education was bad. I know mm. that because we were bussed in from over three different boroughs, my best friend lived miles away from me, so I never saw them out of school. I found it difficult to make friends in my own neighbourhood because they were all different to me and it was so much easier to talk to other disabled kids at school. So my social skills were totally skewed as part of that education as well as my academic achievements. Um, and when I left school and was determined not to go to residential college, I actually told them, no, there's no way you're sending me there, I want to go to a local college. I struggled for some time to know how to talk to people and how to make friends in the real world, as I called it, because Charlton Park certainly wasn't the real world. But I mean, we couldn't even hop the wag because you're picked up by busing you taken to school. That, you know, whereas, a, I mean, my brother hopped the wag, not a lot, because he got about 12 A-levels, but I mean, he hopped the wag from his school along with lots of other mates. It was part, a normal part of childhood. But we couldn't do it. When, when you went to college, do you think you learned to listen more because you couldn't talk? Do you think that's how you became a listener? No, I became a listener from very young, Kate. Mm. Um, I actually, I wasn't allowed home when I was born. My mother was sent home and I was kept at the hospital. Um, but apparently I developed language skills really early, laying in the cot, listening. Um, mm. And um, I also learned that if I could shout out the name of one of the nurses that was on night duty, she'd come and give me a cuddle. So. Um, I learnt to talk um, <laughs> before I was um, 12 weeks old. Mm. Um, but yeah, I don't know what made me such a good listener, to be honest. Um, I mean, you I you I brought am. up a topic there, talking about you know some difference of segregation and people being all yeah. lumped together yeah. versus you know not. But I'm thinking about GAD as an organisation, thinking about its roots and say being in Greenwich. Thinking of people being together, is the sense of um, community that when you, any of you want to talk to, like when you first encountered GAD, was, did you feel, how was it as a community of, of people who identified as or being disabled and working together? What was that like? What, was the, what were the relationships and people? Um, yeah, I, I found that it was a sense of community when I, when I um, became a member of, of GAD. I felt that it was diff 
it was different from when I was at school, because school felt like an institution. It was segregated, um, whereas at GAD, we were built on the philosophy of the social model of disability. So it was a whole different perspective. It was empowering because coming together, we were speaking up. Mm. Whereas at the school, we weren't being listened to, we were being patronised. Mm. So at GAD, we were able to um, basically represent ourselves and um, we also recognised the barriers that we were facing in society, the socially constructed barriers that were making us disabled. Mm. And mm. we've come together to dismantle them. And that was very empowering and very, very different um, experience. I see you've got your, your hand up. Um, yeah. Do you want to come in on that? Um, I'm a new member scared. And uh, I mean, this is uh, 2021. I mean, so I've joined, and it does give me an extra power and that support network as well as other things. You know, I know I can pretty much discuss anything with Sue and probably with Matthew, mm. and we we may talk about more profound things. You know, than you normally mm. do with. In oh, conversation with people, which is great, you know, what I mean, it's wonderful, and um, that it's really mental health or psychological support, which has been missing from our society for many years. And going back to the 70s when I was at school, I was obviously quite an emotionally sensitive kid, but psychology and emotions weren't discussed. Thankfully, we've moved into a new era where psychology and emotions are discussed. For instance, the Heads Together campaign by Prince William, you know, and that's opening the doors for people who are more meek and sensitive nature to be open. And uh, this goes going back to Gad. That's, that's one of the functions I find, you know, which is very useful for me, I mean, obviously. Actually, Emma, because that's something I think that we need to make clear, which a lot of people don't understand. GAD, and now Metro GAD, is and has always been what we call a cross-impairment organisation. So we're not an organisation of physically impaired people, or physically disabled, as the rest of the world likes to term it. We're an organisation for all disabled people. So if you're deaf, if you have mental health issues, yeah, yeah. if you have um, blind, if you're blind or, or visually impaired, mm. um, all of those people will find a place within GAD to have support mm. uh, and um, services that will meet their needs. Yeah. Um, and we also represent all of those different types of situation that people face when we're talking to authority, um, the local council or anybody else. So that's um, really important. The only way we can overcome systems like segregated education is if we unite through organisations like GAD and fight for what we want.
In her opening remarks, Angela Smith spoke about her role at GAD as an independent supporter for young people. In the next part of the discussion, I wanted to find out more about the young people Angela supported. We also discussed some of the barriers that disabled people are confronted with generally. Many of the young people I support had autism and asperger. So there, there is with to do behaviour and yeah. if they were if they unlucky, they were labelled delinquent when they ordered it was because their their behaviour hadn't been diagnosed. So it had my my grandson at 20 was diagnosed with autism yeah. he at school had What's the other one beginning with A? Asperger's. Something like Asperger's. that, yeah. Asperger's. Asperger's. Yeah. 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 But he, he's autistic and they've now realised at work of all places that because he can't communicate properly, they understand what's wrong with him. Yeah. But at school, yeah. he was just put in a yeah. the special unit. Yeah. But again, he fought and he got his A-levels, you know, but, you know. I think the other thing we've had to fight against is the assumptions that we couldn't achieve. When I was at school in our last year, whereas in many schools they do sort of interview practice and filling in job applications and doing CVs, we were given what was then the UB40, the Unemployment Benefit Claim form. To practice filling in. I mean, we took the Mickey and put, yeah, instead of putting our name, we put Mickey Mouse and all the rest of it. But that they thought they were helping us, teach, teaching us how to claim unemployment benefits because the assumption was we'd never work. Um, so I'm sure you won't mind me saying they sent you round to the day centres, didn't they, from uh, school? Because they mean, thought that's where you uh, were going to end uh, up. I mean, and you, yeah. I, I, I go to a day on work centre packing nuts and bones. I literally nearly went mad and I got myself out. And then I went on to Hollywood and then I went on to university twice. So, like, soon. If you don't have any strength, then you're, you're nothing. It's not right. No. And when you're black, it's like a double barrier. Mm. Or racism. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> a piece once about a special school that he went to and he said that 
it was in nice surroundings and the lady that owned the big farmhouse nearby used to, she was the chair of the school and she used to do the nice food I for them every um, graduation. And he said they were 15 Bloody. years of age and she would do them jelly and cakes. <laughs> And she said, and they would have horses to do and all the rest. And he had to give the speech at the end. And he gave the speech and he thanked her for the food and said, it was very special. And everybody cheered because they all knew what the word special meant. <laughs> 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 For the audio, that was a, a finger going, <laughs> going up. Mm. <laughs> educated. Uh. I was bloody lucky. Mm. I come from an educated, middle-class family who pushed mm. me to achieve. Mm. Mm. <laughs> well, actually, not that I'm saying it made a lot of difference, but I came from a working-class family where my father was convinced the only way to get on in life was to have a good education, so mm. I'd get a better mm. chance mm. than he had. Mm. But as I say, sadly, the system sent me to a special school where I got a lousy mm. education mm. and had to fight to get educated afterwards. I didn't go to uni, but I did get a HND in business studies and mm. my way up oh. from there. Thank you for listening to this feature edition of Our Equalities podcast as we celebrate Disability History Month. In the next part of the discussion, you are going to hear about some of the direct action and activism MetroGAD has been involved with. We also hear about direct payments and the Independent Living Fund. I am very keen that we, that we get into the activism and the lobbying, because I know it's a big part of MetroGAD's history yeah. and yeah. GAD's history in the 90s, and yeah. whoever wants to come in on that. I remember when the people the chain the self-boxes and the public were horrified. The issue of me, I think we need more of that because mm. it really confronted everybody. They shot the disabled people who put themselves in hard way to get what we wanted, but it worked after that, that's how we got accessible transport. So I think we need to go back to direct action, because sitting behind a computer is only good up to the point you have to be in people. We have, we have Angela. We uh, our last demonstration was before the pandemic outside the town hall. Mm. I mean, we've been mm. those of us that do demonstrations mm. and chain ourselves to buses and and, <gasps> and do all that stuff haven't really stopped yeah. except that we can't do it because yeah. of the pandemic. Yeah. So there was a specific campaign, wasn't there? Campaign for accessible transport. Yeah. that was yeah. cat. Yeah, that was my group, first of all, from, we, we, we did it from, if you remember, on South Bank, what was it called? Oh, 
They're London, are they? County Hall. Right. The GLC. The basement of the GLC was the women's unit. And the women's unit was where Cat was born. It's a bit like the lesbian and gay centre. There was 12 lesbians and one gay man. <laughs> <laughs> I think I've interviewed one of the other ones. <laughs> anyway. Um, so, t- so tell us more about how that um, people from Metro GAD, GAD as it was then, got involved in that kind of direct action. It took GAD a while actually, because when I first knew GAD, I used to get quite frustrated that they wouldn't come out to demonstrations. But Catherine and Sue joined DATA, uh, the Disabled Tenants Association, and we took, I took them to the telethon demonstration and it got in their blood they got they got a bloodstream of it and they i think got gad involved soon yeah there was a there was a difficulty kate because being a charity and being funded made being very politically active difficult so because we were told that you know we could lose funding, we could be shut down. So whenever people from GAD got involved in direct action, they had to do it as part of a different organisation. All oh, right, you were using me, were you? And in fact, <laughs> in fact, I mean, um, we were always saying we were linked to Dan, the Direct Action Network, yeah. or... Um, Disabled people against cuts or whatever, rather than saying we were GAD mm. for fear of it coming back and damaging GAD's financial yeah, stability. True, true. So that was part of the difficulty. But many of the people on GAD's management committee were very sympathetic or were activists but with a different hat on. Yeah, we also had a couple of academics. They were very influential on our management committee in the early days. We had um, Vic Finkelstein, we had Michael Oliver, and they were very uh, influential around the independent living movement and its birth in the UK and uh, around the social model of disability. Mike wrote that, didn't he? Mike, Mike Oliver wrote that, Professor Mike Oliver, who yes. was um, based at the University of Greenwich. So we were very lucky to have those people. recognised. Um, the social model of disability is recognised by all disabled people, but it's mm. not recognised by the government. Well, they tend the towards the medical model. Yeah, the medical model. Which yeah. is that we've got something wrong with us that needs fixing, yeah. Yeah. basically. And we've got to be good patients, and <laughs> we're told by the medical professionals. And, and yet they, get... say, they say they do it with the, the medical model, and yet when they come and do your cuts, they send a social worker who's got no medical qualification. Mm. And when you tell mm. them, like I told mine that I had epilepsy, she said, Oh, I went to a lady the other day. She had five in one day. I said, did you talk to her afterwards? She said, yes, we carried on when she felt a bit better. If I'd have had five in one day, I'd have been in intensive care. You know? I have one fit and I'm out of action for three days. Not 
talk to the woman half an hour later. They don't, they say the medical model, but they don't use the medical model either. So they get us both ways. Sorry, so sorry. I know you said that's very yeah. something you were talking about. Yeah, I, I just I just wanted to come back broadly on from from something John said and Kate was saying about about um, how Gad was active and I think we we had a role um, around negotiating for the Disability Discrimination Act of 1995 because um, we were a member organisation of BCODP, which is the British Council of Disabled People. So we had we had some of the disabled people's organisations nationally coming together to lobby government to work behind the scenes around putting the legislation together and this would be the first time that there was some legislation that would make it illegal to discriminate against disabled people. We were fighting for civil rights legislation but what we got was actually a very watered down disability mm. discrimination mm. act. But I just want to acknowledge that that was one of the both yes, the organisations yes, involved in those negotiations, mm -hmm. uh, particularly Rachel Hurst, who was our chair at the mm -hmm. time, mm -hmm. was very influential. And then there was and members Ray. of the committee. Right. We were fighting really hard on the streets as um, activists, because part of the direct the disabled people's direct action network. Yeah pushing for the legislation to get through by being arrested, blocking the traffic and causing mayhem. Yeah. But it was all like non-violent civil disobedience. Yeah. In, 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 it was very necessary at the time. Uh, yeah. Yeah. like Britain and uh, Extinction Rebellion learned from us. The, uh, <laughs> the police were very strange when they arrested us. What is ironic? I when they arrested us, they couldn't get us in the van. No. They were accessible. Yeah. <laughs> but in fact, we got accessible police vans before we got accessible buses. Accessible police stations. Oh, yeah, yeah, where they could lock you up overnight. Yeah, yeah. Although the accessible police station they put us in was quite funny because it was supposed to house 18 people and once the four wheelchairs got in, that was it. It couldn't take anymore, so they let them out. <laughs> um, thinking that that's dis the Disability Discrimination Act and uh, if anybody wants to say anything about what it achieved afterwards in terms of anything that changed, I know there's something around direct payments you might want to say, if anybody wants to pick up on that kind of, the end of, in, in terms of personal assistance and independent living. Well, be before direct payments, we had the ILF, which was wonderful, the Independent Living Fund, and that was good for all of us. But it was like anything else. There were people that didn't know about it. And the government gave it to us thinking there wasn't that many disabled people that would claim it and were shocked when the money went. 
Had it not been for direct payments, I could never have gone to university or moved to London. Do you mean direct Still. payments or, mm. or ILF? Direct payments. Mm. Yeah? Mm. Ah. Can somebody explain the difference so we all understand? Yeah. I'm yeah. listening. I think managed indirect payments. So the local authority, working with GAD, uh, and with a lot of support from Clive Efford, who's now an MP for Eltham, who was a local councillor at the time, he um, pushed for this as well. And so the local authority, uh, Greenwich Borough, would give an amount of money to GAD with instructions as to how much was to go which of the disabled people they were wanting to support. And though, then those disabled people were able to use that money to employ their own support staff, which um, in the disability movement we call personal assistance. Um, and it then moved from that to direct payments when the government decided to pass the legislation to make it possible. The problem what year was that then, do you know? No, I'm not sure. Mm-hmm. It was after I'd come along, so it must have been mid to late 90s that direct payments were made legal. Yeah. Um, but then the issue around that is that the government gave a pot of money to the local authorities to fund social care. Mm-hmm. And so as that was cut back, during the austerity period, we found that they were rationing the direct payments and cutting our care packages and things so that they could justify not spending too much money on us because the government wasn't giving them the money. And part of the problem that we had just pre the pandemic when we were campaigning against the local authority wanting to put care charges up is again linked to that same dilemma between the national government and your local government because the legislation had been amended so that people could be assessed as to how much they were able to pay, which is a very strange calculation anyway. We have a minimum income that we're allowed which doesn't equate to minimum wage or any other calculated mean. It's somebody's just drawn a figure out of the air. But the government expects the local authorities to charge every disabled person the most that they're legally able to, whether the local authority thinks that's fair or not. 
and so the amount that they get from the central government assumes they are bringing in all that money from the service users. So if they don't, they have a shortfall because they're not taking in enough from us and the government's only giving them up to the level assuming they were, so they end up not having enough funding. So they're between a rock and a hard place. And I know that many of the councillors were really distressed about having to agree to increase charges. Mm. Um, I get I get my pension, and because I was born in 1948, I get disability living allowance still, not PIP. So there's a section of it that is for care, and a section of it that is for my mobility. My mobility goes on my car. So that's gone. My care component is £89.15 or something like that. Greenwich Council takes £88 of it. Mm. So I don't have any money for a new foot plate, which is £125, or to pay my gardener. My gardener is a disabled person, but doesn't have a national insurance number that I can give to the council, so I'm not going to get an... Where am I going to find a gardener that's going to give me the paperwork that the mm. council want? So I pay them £88 every single week. In the final part of our discussion, I wanted to hear about MetroGAD's current services and the successes and the challenges that the merger with Metro presented. The current service, MetroGAD, since its merger with Metro, what does that look like? What are the issues that people are facing in, in terms of um, their needs that MetroGAD is, is supporting well, with? In, in terms of the face-to-face the -face, um, team, because we have three members on our team, we've got Colin, Alan and Janet. Um, yeah. Everybody knows Janet. And In fact, 90% of the disabled community in Greenwich know Janet better than they know Gad because people don't say, go to Gad, okay. they say, go to Janet because Janet is, is a, a, a star in terms of um, she knows her stuff. welfare rights advice. So Janet is the, the number one person to enable people to get as much funding as they're possibly entitled to for their support needs and just living life. Alan does general advocacy, so he's supporting people, again fighting with the local authority for housing or access issues or, or things like that in, in the borough. And Colin is supporting people around hate crime because unfortunately as well as racism and um, LGBTQT people experiencing hate crime, disabled people do as well, mm. which I know some people mm. find hard to believe, but it is true. Mm. We are often attacked physically because of being disabled. I mean, the pandemic has made okay. it worse. Some people have come to the conclusion that we spread it. I don't know how. Um, mm. But um, in the same way that the Chinese community have been being attacked during the mm. pandemic, disabled people are being attacked as well. Um, so there's th those are the three main 
streams that we do face-to-face -face support with other disabled people in the borough. Of course, the... Um, oh, there is a fourth one, I nearly forgot. I'm sorry, Sue. Uh, we also have a counselling service um, provided by Sue, um, which is another story which we're probably running out of time for now, but um, some years back, Metro uh, GAD, as it was then, set up a counsellor training scheme um, and Sue went through that and became fully qualified. There's now a British Association of Counselling and Psychotherapy fully accredited therapeutic counsellor and she provides um, counselling service to disabled people through Metro. She's been doing it with all of us for years. Oh yeah, know? yeah. So um, she, uh, she's done a lot, she does a lot of, of uh, emotional and, and, and mental health support um, in an unstructured way, as well as being a professional counsellor, I think. Yeah, it's I mean, unstructured. Yes, yes. I, mean, I, I mean, obviously, I really appreciate um, having had that opportunity through GAD, and it was a project that, that John set up from being a counsellor. John set it up, got the funding, and then a number of us were, were lucky enough to um, be able to be sponsored, to, to be able to train up and get qualified to then be able to provide that service to disabled people locally. There was a little aside, but I would like to share it. Um, when it came time for Sue and her group to um, receive their degrees, Greenwich, Count, uh, Greenwich University initially had set up the ceremony to take place um, somewhere with a, a stage that was not accessible, planning to have the mm -hmm. disabled people receive their certificates down on the floor rather than up on the stage. And the whole of the student body for that course threatened to boycott the proceedings and so Greenwich University had to move it to somewhere where everybody was on the same stage to receive the degrees, which um, goes to prove that there are plenty of very good allies out there in the community oh, yeah. who will support us mm. fighting for our rights when they yeah. understand mm. and know us well enough to... to know that it is society that we're fighting against and the way society is structured um, more than the impact of our various impairments in many cases. And I think it, it needed disabled people to say, you've got to stop this patronisation. The special schools had very much the child did as it was told you didn't have any control over your own life and that went on when they were then older and so on they had carers provided by the council who went round your house without your permission type of thing and did what they thought they should do in your home and and that was the way it was and nobody thought it should change because it was okay you know why would we change yeah, I mean, there's, there's still a lot of work to be done because mm -hmm. the society still makes a huge fuss of supporting um, 
promoting and lauding child carers, which is something that should be totally illegal, frankly. We're, you know, we've moved away from Victorian times. Children don't go up chimneys anymore. Children don't go down the mines. Children should not be no. carers. Mm. They should be supporting the mm. family yes. so that the disabled parents can parent yeah. in the same way that everybody yeah. else does. Yeah. And the children should have normal, standard lives as children with their parents parenting them, not the other way around, <clears throat> which is what happens for many children. And anecdotally, there's plenty of evidence of the mental harm that is done to mm. children mm. Um, by them being given the adult role of mm. in the family with all that responsibility for the well-being mm. of their parents. So we, that, we that's, that's, that's something else the disability movement's got to take yeah, on at some point. We did a film in 1980 about children that care, and my son was one of them. Yeah, my son's bipolar now. Mm. For years of watching his mother thrash down and, you know, having to look after her and thinking she was going to die all the time. And yeah. I mean, not that, yeah. not that myself and my children's mother needed that amount of support from the family, but my mm. children were always saying to people, my parents care for us, we're not carers. And they would not allow anybody. No, he, he mm. would say the same. They would not allow anybody. Had a, yeah. a psychological effect, and yeah, sure we're only finding that out now. Yeah. And he's forty odd. Mm. Thank you all for sharing all of that. Um, just wanted to bring it up, if possible, to the merger with Metro um, and Gad's merger with, which is now Metro Gad. Who would like to say anything about that? I suggested Metro to them originally and and they didn't like the idea. And then they went to Lewisham, which turned out to be the worst well, no, thing they ever did. I wouldn't, I wouldn't say and then they didn't. came to Metro and they love it. I, I know they love it. I didn't say that I wouldn't say that we didn't no, like we the didn't. idea. The didn't thing, see the sense of it, did you? No, it wasn't that. We could foresee the difficulties, Kate, which we're still struggling with at the moment. We hit a problem in that we were running for several years a successful personal assistance agency, mm -hmm. which we set up despite the fact that most of the rest of the disability community said, well, good luck with that, because we'd never touch it with a barge pole. It's far too difficult. We ran it successfully for a good number of years, but it never fitted in with the government's model so that the um, Care Quality Commission, um, which we called something else, I think, in the beginning, but I can't remember what it was called, whose job it was to monitor care providers, tried monitoring us, and because we didn't quite fit their model, and one or two other issues that came up. In the end, we were not able to continue as a care agency, because we weren't. We were a PA agency and it was different. We had the clients of the agency were line managers of their staff. Although we employed them through GAD, they were line managers and they did supervision with them and, and treated 
them as the staff that they were managing. Um, but there were a whole number of things. We were supposed to have books in our homes where the PA would write in how jolly we were when they left us or, or whether we paid or not yeah and all that exactly. which we were refusing to do so mm, there, there were do. there were a range of issues that um meant that we weren't able to carry on but that was one of the main funding streams for the organization that wasn't linked to specific um limit time limited projects so when we couldn't continue with that, we hit a financial problem. And so we had to look to merge. Initially, we were very clear as a, um, a board because we, we had our own board of trustees, we were a, a, an independent charity, that we would look for another user-led disability group to merge with um, because that was was seen as fundamental. The problem with that is we found one that the local authority said they would not work with because they had been involved in court cases against their local authority. Um, we found another one which turned out to be That's sadly I'm laughing about. in worse financial state than we were, although oh, no, we didn't know that at the time. Two people. We had looked at several organisations, including Metro, and we liked what Metro was doing, what it stood for, the fact that it was wanting to become a multi-equalities organisation. But we were anxious about the fact that by moving into being part of Metro, the disability movement might see that we were no longer a user-led organization Richard has and in fact that is the major problem that yeah. we are encountering yeah. um, I would challenge the disability movement so and people from the disability movement listen to this listen up because we have yeah. a management committee with a huge amount of autonomy um, which has come from the membership of Metro, actually agreed at an annual general meeting. So the Board of Trustees of Metro have to abide by that because it's been passed by the membership. We have responsibility for everything to do with GAD except legally the financial side of things because we're not a charity anymore. We steer the focus of GAD, where it's moving forward in the future, led by our membership who attend annual meetings and give us feedback about what they want us to focus on in terms of um, projects, in terms of working with the local authority. We also benefit from being part of a multi-equalities organisation because as Angela rightly pointed out, she's disabled and black. As Kate has pointed out, she's disabled and a lesbian. There is no such thing as a disabled person who is purely disabled. We are all got multi-identities and we will experience discrimination in different areas or even multiple discrimination where it hits us from all areas. And so it's very important that we acknowledge that and being part of Metro 
tackles all of those issues and means we are, whereas we were stronger as GAD, as disabled people together, we are now even stronger because we haven't lost our strength. We've gained from being part of a multi-equality organisation and we are feeding into what Metro's trying to achieve um, around disability by bringing our lived experience to help Metro address those issues more effectively. And we are learning from Metro around issues of, of race and um, LGBTQT. So I think it's a win-win. The only problem is that the disability movement seems to have rather we'd gone broke and failed, yeah. you know, stopped existing That's altogether true. than find a yeah. way to survive and still be a powerful voice for disabled people. Yeah. I feel for, yeah, I feel really proud that we merged with with Metro in twenty nineteen. Because I think actually God's always been quite pioneering. And I I feel my experience is that we're very supported within Metro and that it's inclusion in action. That we've sort of, in a in a sense, we've moved on to this this fantastic equalities group, and I think we're all working together and, and learning from each other. Like you say, John, I think it's it's actually really brilliant for us. I think uh, I've known Sue since she was twenty, and I've never found Sue has a problem with anybody's ism, whether they are lesbian or black or got hair growing out their nose or whatever. <laughs> She'll accept everyone. And if, you know, if, if GAD merging with Metro makes more disabled people understand that, then I think it's a very good thing. Wonderful, well, fascinating discussion. Thanks for listening to Metro's podcast on equalities. Please join us to continue the conversation online by following us at Metro Charity on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook. You can subscribe to our podcast series on your preferred app. And to find out more about our services, please visit our website, metrocharity.org.uk. Thank you.